and welcome back to the Rethink Retail Podcast. On today's episode, we are revisiting a discussion from the Rethink Retail Archives. Recorded in November 2019, host Julia Hare sits down with Alexander Janov, Head of Customer Experience Research at Zappos. A pioneer in human-centric experience, Zappos differentiates itself through its top-tier customer service, a strategy that Janov says helps the brand create a lasting emotional connection with its customers, which in turn results in customers who are extremely loyal to the brand. Now, of course, a lot has changed since we recorded this episode in 2019, and as a result of the pandemic, we are seeing many more brands adopt a human-centric approach to retailing, which is something Zappos has been doing for over two decades. During their conversation, Julia and Alex explore Zappos's exceptional customer service culture, the power of transparency and trust, and why it's imperative that retailers get to know their customer at an individual level. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this special episode from the Rethink Retail Vault. Hello, today's episode of Rethink Retail features my guest, Alexander Jenel. Alex holds a PhD in experimental social psychology and currently leads customer research for the Zappos family of companies. In previous positions, Alex was responsible for research and usability of the products and services for companies like TurboTax, State Farm Insurance, and the Active Network. Alex, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Julie. Alex, I wanted to first say congratulations to you and Zappos celebrating your 20th year in business. And I wanted you to just kick off. I know you've been there for at least the last five years, and I wanted to hear about your experience there so far and just a bit about your background in general. Absolutely, Julia. Um, Thank you so much. First of all, it's been an exciting ride with Zappos. My academic background is in experimental social psychology, like you pointed out. I'm originally from Bulgaria. I came to the States for uh, undergraduate studies and then continued on to graduate studies and so on. After graduate school, I was considering briefly becoming a professor, but after applying a couple of times, I soon gave up that, um, that idea and I was kind of sick and tired of living under the poverty line for 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. With so much education, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Then I transitioned to the industry and I've been applying my learnings and my mindset from academic psychology to the business world for the past 15 plus years. Can you give our listeners just a quick overview of what the definition is, like the foundation of experimental social psychology? That's great. And I've done this a few times, but nobody has asked me to clarify that. And I'm kind of delighted to be able to do that. Now, psychology is um, actually very varied and very diverse discipline. So it basically covers different aspects of humans from the way we think, which is cognitive psychology, cognition, Mm -hmm. thinking processes and so on, to emotions, to uh, clinical psychology, which deals with disorders and when people need help, to neuropsych and so on. And social psychology, is uh, that was my specialty, and it's the most interesting to me. 
and it studies uh, humans as social beings and we are social beings so anything that happens happens either in the context of being with others or you have the feeling that others are observing you or that you're in the presence of others and that's essentially the definition of social psychology how the actual or perceived presence of others determines how we think behave feel and so on Mm-hmm. And relates to I, what we hear about in the business world a lot, which is the emotional intelligence needed by leaders. Exactly. So emotional intelligence, that's the application of emotions uh, to organizational design and so on. But also there's a big emphasis now on emotions as it applies to consumers and how companies appeal to their needs and so on. Behavioral economics is a huge trend now, and it's essentially applied psychology in the sense that we realize that a lot of our decisions are not based on numbers or logic or reasoning, but they're based on our emotional reactions to what happens. So they've just Mm -hmm. branded it as behavioral economics, very clever, and it's been very successful. (laughs) So behavioral economics is really applied psychology. And can you give us an example of behavioral economics in action? I mean, is there a way that um, we would relate to this in daily life as we're shopping? Absolutely. So uh, some of the the biggest names out there, for example, Dan Ariely is a big name in behavioral economics, has done a lot to popularize it. And I'll use some of his examples. He talks about two European countries that are neighboring each other. And he compares the level to which uh, people in both countries donate their organs in the case that something happens to them. And he finds drastic differences. So in one country, 80 plus percent donate their organs and in the other country, only 20 percent or so. And then you can rationally start thinking, well, maybe there is differences in in the, in the way these cultures are different, but there are such close cultures and such close people in a way, right, that it's difficult to explain it. And then when you dig deeper, what he discovered was that the root cause of that was the way applications for driver's licenses were designed. Mm. There's check boxes in each one, but in one, the box is already checked and you have to uncheck it. So the default choice is to donate your organs. In the other country, the default choice is not to. And then you have to take a step to donate. Wow. So a checkbox. <laughs> it's a checkbox. And that highlights the power of the default, default choice. And so then we can use it in business. And unfortunately, and we can talk about trust a bit later on, But unfortunately, a lot of businesses now use these learnings, maybe not explicitly or implicitly, but they use these learnings to design what's called dark patterns, basically tricking consumers into choices that they wouldn't make otherwise. Ah, interesting. I don't know if I've heard that term used before, dark patterns. Yeah, it's a design term, but it's kind of the, you know how Google say, don't be evil? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you get the opposite. Right. So the power of default trust, and we could see that with the example you gave in the study of the two neighboring countries in the EU. And we can talk about trust later, definitely, um, if that's an area that you study. But I want to bring it back a little bit to the research you do for Zappos, um, customer research. What does that look like as we're, you know, we're at the end of a decade now, we're in 2020. So what do you think has really evolved when it comes to customer research over the past 10 years? Absolutely. Thank you. Great question, Julia. Um, And I'll give that in the context, again, of my 
evolution as a researcher, as a applied psychologist, if you will. And when I started, I started in usability about 15 years ago. And back then, it was very important to have websites be easy to use and intuitive by consumers. So there was a lot of emphasis on that. So we looked at how we designed interfaces to match people's mental models and to match how they think and to really help them with what they need to accomplish, get obstacles out of the way. I did that for State Farm. Uh, we had a huge usability lab. Then I moved on to TurboTax, and they also invested very heavily in usability with uh, big labs with one-way mirrors and having people come in and do their taxes on the computer, and we would observe what they did and talk <laughs> So on. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was uh, lots of fun. <laughs> Watching someone do their taxes has never been more exciting. <laughs> and now you see why I'm so excited working for Zappos, right? Because it's, <laughs> it's an area that people enjoy doing more than doing their taxes. <laughs> but it was necessary work. Mm -hmm. And I will say I like TurboTax. I do use it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of work has gone into that. And then I moved on to the Active Network, which was a small company with not a lot of resources for research, but the kind of blessing in disguise was that I worked with awesome colleagues and one of them was a great market researcher. And so I learned a lot from him. So when I came to Zappos, I started applying what I learned to broaden my area of research. So at Zappos now, we do usability, of course, but also help um, our marketing team. We do segmentation, customer segmentation. We do a lot of surveys, we do home visits, we run the gamut of research. But what is really defining what is underlying all of this is kind of a mission, which is to understand your customers as people. I'm also part-time giving talks on behalf of Zappos. We have a group internally called Zappos Insights, and we go and give keynote speeches and so on. And that's been my topic and my message has been Understand your customers as people, not as shoppers, not as callers, not as clickers on buttons, but as people. And then when you do that, then you can really create an emotional connection with them and, and long-lasting loyalty. And I think a lot of retailers struggle with that. And there was a report from Salesforce this year, and it showed that over half, the stat was 64% of consumers said they didn't feel that retailers knew them. Does this number surprise you? Do you think Zappos is kind of ahead of the curve when it comes to this because of the investments you guys make? That's a two-part question. And I think that's where trust comes in. And to answer your question directly, I'm not at all surprised by this. And you know what's really sad is that personalization is such a big topic and such a big trend now. But combined with that insight, what it means is that um, all of that, or most of it, is not real personalization. It's just best guess recommendations. They're recommendations to make people buy more. Where trust comes in is um, when I was really adopting and, and learning about the Net Promoter Score. Maybe you've heard of the Net Promoter Score developed by Bain, Fred Reichheld. And um, I had heard him speak about another question that he developed which never took as well as the Net Promoter Score, but really stuck with me. And the question or statement is, let's say businesses or retailers always have my best interest as a customer in mind. Same rating scale. And so I started using that question along with the Net Promoter Score. And that, to me, I've called that trust. But what we've discovered in our research is pretty stunning. It's not 
kind of news in a sense, but when you discover it empirically, it's pretty um, stunning as uh, trust in retail is in the gutter based on that question. It's severely negative. So what customers are saying is, no, businesses or retailers do not have my best interest as a customer in mind. That's interesting. Is there an inverse relationship between the two? So you said use it in tandem with the NPS scores that, yeah, they, they don't have my best interest in mind, but uh, you know, some I would still recommend to a friend. Um, I, I think I've seen that. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done you know, all the elaborate like statistical analysis to kind of correlate those, but I've seen that some of that relationship where you would recommend a company, maybe because they're the best out of all the other ones. But when it comes to do they really have my interest as a customer in mind? Not really. There's other data out there. There was a graph ranking the trustworthiness of uh, professions. And on the very bottom were members of Congress and then <laughs> people. And then third from the bottom were business executives. Mm-hmm. I think that ties in with all of that. So kind of goes to the heart of this question businesses, retailers do not really get to know their customers really well, but they want to sell them more and more and more, right? And then consumers all nowadays have to look over their shoulders all the time, right? With a small print, and we talked about these dark patterns and the check mm-hmm. check boxes that you have to uncheck or you forget to subscribe to things that you didn't want to subscribe to, and so on. So that's, I think, the thing to watch out for. Absolutely. And you mentioned a lot of retailers they use recommendation models and the goal of the data they're collecting is to get you to buy more as a consumer. And you mentioned through your work that you guys actually do home visits with customers. Do you think there's an element where the qualitative data is missing because it is hard to collect and quantify? And and that's really how you get to know your consumer through conversations? Is that part of it? I think that's absolutely part of it. We tend to get these big swings in trends and in being enamored with one method over another. So now it's the era of big data mm-hmm. because we now have the technology to look at the big data and to see patterns in it. It's almost like we got this fancy crystal ball and now we are, we're all about that. <laughs> we kind of forget that customers are people. And, and when I go and talk, I start by cracking a little joke and saying, you know, let me tell you about myself. I'm married. We have 2.4 beautiful children. <laughs> And then I get that reaction, people chuckle, but that's that's exactly the point, right? We start averaging people, and then we think we're going to be creating experiences, and there's no average experience. Mm-hmm. To counterbalance that, you need to always combine qualitative with quantitative data. And to with qualitative data, you're going to get those rare insights, and then you need to quantify them, see how many people think that way, and so on. And you may go do one visit and have this epiphany which may lead to millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of business. Definitely, definitely. I think the secret is in combining all those methods and always going back and forth between them. If we bring this a little back to Zappos, I think it's interesting how you guys have branded yourself as a service company that happens to sell shoes. And there are a lot of loyal customers. I've bought from Zappos many times myself. And I was wondering, is it part of your culture that's helped create the loyalty or... Is it because of other elements, factors? It's both culture and also very innovative thinking and approach from the very early days. So you mentioned Zappos is now 20 years old. Mm-hmm. When the founder you know, went to Tony Shea and Tony was first an investor that helped grow the company and so on, then, then he took over as a CEO. 
one of the stories I tell when I go and speak is the wow email that they got very early when they started selling shoes. Oh, Almost nobody was selling shoes at the time. And the interesting thing is that now everybody's talking about wow and they have even whole commercials like Microsoft has a whole commercial around wow and so on. And many customer service companies now, when you call them, say, how can I wow you? But early on, what happened at Zappos was that they screwed up uh, the order for this woman that needed a pair of shoes for a wedding or something important. Mm. And uh, she got very upset. She wrote to Zappos and they, at that point, they went out of their way to fix it for her. And they fixed it and they got this email and the subject said, wow, something like you guys are great. And this was 19 years ago. And then they realized that, okay, everybody can be selling shoes and these people can buy these shoes anywhere. But what we're going to do is we're going to invest in customer service. And they've invested in customer service ever since. That's the main focus. And and over 20 years, they've built this brand and this kind of following. And that's at a time when everybody else was cutting the cost for customer service, meaning they would outsource it. They would essentially degrade it to the point that, yes, it's there, but it's a horrible experience. (laughs) Whereas it's the opposite. opposite. You you call, like, we have to answer in the first one or two seconds or 10 seconds. Oh, okay. And then there's no limit to the call. You can talk for hours. The longest call was over 10 hours long. What? What were they talking about? Their life story? Exactly, exactly. I don't know. So the the customer service agent had to take a couple of people, (laughs) but... But they talk, and, and I personally have been when when we get on the phones and we do that annually. It's not uncommon to be on a call for an hour and a half, and yes, yeah, somebody just needs to talk. So your agents aren't penalized if they are not meeting their time requirements. Um, get off the phone within ten minutes, like some companies do. Yeah, there's no time requirements. There's no time limit. Our agents are they're called customer loyalty team members. They're incentivized to create an emotional connection. That's excellent. And that's the incentive. And also Zappos hires the best of the best. Our acceptance rate is more stringent than Harvard's. It's 1.4% and Harvard's is like 4 point something. But it's driven mostly by customer service. So many people want to work for Zappos. that They select the best of the best. And I mean, they select happy people, you know, happy, quirky interesting people that then you can hear it on the on the phone it comes through that emphasis on customer service plus um, selection and and other things that early on they decided it's all about the relationships with your customers and with your vendors and so they've built this through the years so part of um, we don't have a company party we have a vendor party oh really is that an annual party an annual party and our parties are epic i mean this is like you have to come sometimes when when there's examples party and you'll be breathless it's unbelievable but that's part of the culture and then again hiring the right people even if it takes longer so you don't have to manage them so now we're in in this self-organization mode we've been in that for four or five years where there's no managers there's still a hierarchy but People are encouraged to organize around the work, not around individuals and titles. And that's very helpful in the context of research that has enabled us to do research across, right? So we don't have a VP of marketing with their research team and their research budget, right? We have leaders in all those areas, but then our customer research team helps all of them. That's a huge part of it. That was another thing I was wondering, just because it is a lot of times siloed with large companies, 
where there's a data team, there's a marketing team, and there's research teams, and they have a bit of a challenge to connect all of the data and insights from each team to create that 360 picture. Exactly. That's one of the biggest impediments is the silos that then translate into budget silos and into data silos and all of those. Then you cannot connect the dots. You can't realize that it's the same person in all those databases. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I wanted to ask you, because this um, was a recent news story that you guys launched your Goods for Goods platform, which is another great thing that is embedded in your culture is, you know, purpose-driven platforms and products. Can you tell us a little bit about the Goods for Goods platform? It's a whole program, a, a set of initiatives, if you will, that highlights the fact that Zappos is not only a customer service company that happens to sell shoes, but it's also a purpose-driven company. So we're purpose over profit, really. And you can see that most clearly in the customer service area where we give up a lot of profit in the shipping and everything to really satisfy our customers. So the goods for good encompasses a lot of things, but some of it is um, Zappos Adaptive, which realized uh, somebody in, in the company realized that a lot of uh, people with disabilities have a difficult time putting on clothes, for example, and so on. So they started this program to partner with different brands to provide easy to put on apparel. They also, another offshoot of that is um, selling single shoes, right? For people who only either the two feet don't match or you have an amputee or something like this that needs only one shoe. So this is something that I don't know how many other retailers are thinking about that. Around um, the holidays and especially Black Friday, Cyber Monday, because we don't have a lot of sales, we're pretty much a full price retailer or higher than most, right? In order to, to be able to sustain that customer service level. We organize things like pet adoptions. We sponsor pet adoptions. Uh, so we have the poly days and so on. Oh, that's great. So all these initiatives, I think, are at the core of what Zappos is about. Mm-hmm. And it just makes so much difference. I mean, there was a study that said over a third of consumers are willing to pay 25% more than full price if it means the items are eco-friendly. And then there's that trust factor uh, where people want to do business with retailers they trust. And so even though your price might not be discounted often, if ever, it's worth it because of the service you're providing. Exactly. And and that's um, kind of the overgeneralization is that a lot of millennials and younger people are kind of more into that. So maybe there's something to that. Um, and there are other retailers out there that in Patagonia and other Toms that have put this kind of trust and purpose at the heart of their, these are brands more than retailers, right? But at the heart of what they do. Mm-hmm. And I just think Zappos is such an interesting brand to look at because of the fact shoes are something in the past that have just been harder for consumers to buy online, right? Because of the fit and the difference between certain brands. And so it's amazing that you guys have had just so much success selling direct to consumer. And you guys were one of the first brands to test out pop-ups, I believe. So that's an interesting thing I learned as well when I was researching. Yeah, they're always experimenting. Zappos is always experimenting and uh, Tony Shea is doing a lot of those organizational change innovation to bring us back to this kind of startup and entrepreneurial mentality instead of a siloed big company. Mm-hmm. So the, the pop-ups uh, were part of that. And I think there were a lot of learnings. I think for me, some of the learnings were that you need to have a very clear goal for these pop-ups and to 
execute based on that. So you can have pop-ups based on experiences, more experiential, right? to create buzz, to create word of mouth. And you can have other types that are more sales oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And if you mix both, then I think that's kind of a trap in a way. So that was one of the learnings is kind of have a very clear strategy. So for example, the others like Bonobos uh, have been very successful with these um, men's shops. I don't know if they're considered pop-ups, but they're small spaces, physical mm-hmm. spaces. They call them guide shops where men can go and get measured to get a great fit, but they um, don't necessarily walk away with a bag that day, but they create an experience. You know, you can get a drink or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Adding that value. Adding that value, right? I mean, and uh, even the not being able to purchase on the spot, they've branded positively, like you walk out bag free or something like that. You can really be successful with these experiments. Um, and I mean, I personally see a lot of value in those. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I want to just out of my own curiosity, is there anything throughout your five plus years at Zappos now that has really been super insightful? I mean, is there anything your teams have tested or piloted that it was just like an aha moment? One of the biggest ahas for us was this research on personalization, right? Because it's in business, you tend to pick up a buzzword. It becomes a buzzword like personalization (laughs) and it becomes a marketing term and it loses meaning very quickly. Mm -hmm. Omnichannel. Omnichannel. Yeah. All of that. So let's take personalization. So it's a good thing. You know, we want to personalize, blah, blah, blah. It dawned on me that, okay, we talk about personalization, but we're not measuring it. We're not asking our customers if they think Zappos is personalized. So I included that question in an open text field in our voice of the customer feedback loop. Hmm. started getting data in and it was, the numbers were through the roof, the very high numbers. And I was a little surprised. And then I read the text and it was, it had almost nothing to do with personalization. They're like, give us a 10 and have great customer service and great selection. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. We need to dig deeper. So we did a bigger survey, much more targeted survey. And what we found out was that a couple of things. First, some people didn't understand what personalization meant. They're like, what do you mean? So that was one. Right. And then when we looked at the text data and the numbers, we discovered that about half of our customers actually expect us to look at their data and to personalize. And another half want to be anonymous. And you know what that, I think that leads back to the trust issue. That's a big split. (laughs) Exactly, right? But I think it's understandable because that goes back to the trust. And I believe that trust can be earned. But some people just don't want to put their information in because they're concerned and so on. But the other, the glass half full kind of thing. And I think it's perfectly fine. You can give people great tools and so on to go on their own and without having to suggest it may go back to i mean coming up with another kind of psychology explanation there may be personality differences where some people are more do-it-yourselfers versus others expect more advice or more help right Mm -hmm. and so for the people who expected personalization they essentially said you have my data you have my past purchases please help me curate for me right mm-hmm. all that stuff you know my size why do i have to start over every time picking a size and picking this and picking that and so that to me was a bigger moment and what i've been 
advocating is that personalization should start at the level of asking for permission. Ask for permission, like, can we use your past behavior, past data to tailor the experience to you? Certainly. And making that question super clear, right? So it's not some hidden box that pops up or form that's pre-checked with their opting in and saying yes. So you know who of your 50% of the customers want that personalization. Right, exactly. And again, I mean, I'm just spitballing here. I right, get right. In, you know, I mean, there's people who make the decisions for features and so on, much uh, above my pay grade and so on. But um, this is just my personal opinion. And I'm not talking about how it can be done, check boxes or other things, but it's just the principle of, you know, respect people's desire to be anonymous or to have their data, you know, be used to help them. Mm-hmm. Not the data be for the for companies to market to them or to keep selling to them. Absolutely. And on that note, I wanted to ask one last question and just get your feedback on what you're most excited about for the new decade. And also just I guess it's two questions. Is there anything exciting Zappos is planning or in the industry that you can share with our audience? I'm sure, yeah. There is one thing. I think the press release went out so I can talk about it. But it's, um, again, Zappos being Zappos, we don't spend money on traditional advertising. We don't do TV ads and so on, but we we spend our money more on experiential marketing mm-hmm. and they call it story-worthy things. So, for example, we partner with a theater in Vegas. Now it's called the Zappos Theater. It used to be the Access Theater in Planet Hollywood. Uh, that's one thing. But what's I heard is coming up is Zappos purchased a jumbo jet from uh, Burning Man. Oh. And they're going to plop it right across from Zappos. And they're going to create this uh, awesome experience of um, it's going to be like a event venue. Ah, very neat. This jumbo jet there with almost like a mini terminal and you go in and you check in and you check in your emotional baggage. <laughs> that's funny. So that's, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. I would love to see that once that's live. That sounds really cool. Instagrammable. Totally. That's gonna. <laughs> that's the definition, right? Of Instagrammable. And then in terms of just customer research, um, I'm really excited, but there's so much more that can be done in terms of focusing more on customers as people and understanding them using now there's so many different methods for understanding emotions that are non-verbal like facial expressions and we're getting into neuroscience and so on and so using more of these methods again not being evil but using them to help our customers better i love that well thank you alex so much for joining today great insights really fun things to talk about that, um, you know, we probably don't talk about enough, which is the research part of retail. So loved having you on. Thank you, Julia. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.